Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective. Good evening. Welcome to Perspective On. I'm Larry White, your host. Boy, I tell you, there has been a lot going on in the past three to four weeks in the news. Uh, we, This country is battling everything from unemployment in the wake of the pandemic to the crisis on the education landscape in the wake of the pandemic. We're dealing with uh, issues re- revolving around police brutality, all related to the pandemic and, and the, the riots and the demonstrations that are going on, not just in Georgia, but all over the country. We've also had some issues to happen in, in, in uh, we've also had some issues to happen in the air, in the realm of farming, in the food justice. And so there's a lot of things going on tonight. So uh, for this next hour, Perspectives On will have what we're calling, we're branding the Women's Laboratory. In this Women's Laboratory, we're going to talk about various issues and give our perspective on how these impacts will will affect the various uh, places uh, within the realms of community, as well as those that will impact women in particular. And so what I've done is I've invited a panel of some dynamic women who are, uh, they come from a variety of, 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 of diverse areas within the community and each one uh, have a perspective, whether it's from education, whether it's mentoring young women, whether it's just being a young mother. Um, We also have a a perspective coming from that which is not necessarily African-American, which I value. If If you know me and if you have visited our website, you know that that Perspectives On is all about diversity. And so I'm going to let these individuals uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Reverend Lewis, I will start with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what you bring to this panel tonight, Reverend Lewis? Good evening, and thank you for another invitation to join your Perspectives On conversation I am Andrea Lewis. I am the founder of Virtuous Pearl Interdenominational Women's Ministry, where we study God's word through the eyes and experiences of women. I am also a professor of education at Spelman College. And it's great to be with each of you this evening. Awesome, awesome. Okay, and let's see. uh, Reverend Sutton, would you like to go next? Why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you bring to uh, this panel tonight? Great day, everybody. I am Hope Sim Sutton. I am the founder of She is Powerful Incorporated, and we simply believe in the genius of women and girls to powerfully change the world. And so I am a coach. I'm a consultant. 
I'm an ordained minister in the Lord's Church, and I am very excited to be here on tonight. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Reverend Powers, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, good evening, uh, everyone. And once again, I am so excited to participate in Perspectives on. I am the Reverend Esther K. Powers, the senior pastor of Mount Zion AME Church in College Park, Georgia on Riverdale Road. Um, also, I am a mentor. Uh, I am a person who believes in empowering others to make a difference. Uh, and so we, I'm just excited to be here tonight and share in these uh, interesting and rich conversations. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, Reverend Shelton, are you there? Can you hear us? I can, I can. <laughs> awesome, introduce yourself. And just tell us what you bring to this ministry. Absolutely. Good evening, everyone. I'm Reverend Kim Shelton, the senior pastor of Good News Community Church in Chicago, Illinois. I am also an early childhood educator and manager for National Lewis University in Chicago as well. So I come bringing just my ex my understanding and expertise in how do we understand racial injustices? How do we understand uh, equity and equality uh, and injustices. Um, as you know, I just mentioned I'm coming out of Chicago and violence is almost everyday life here. And so we are on the front line uh, trying to combat it community by community. Awesome, wow. I see you all the way black. <laughs> all the way black, that's all right. I ain't mad at you all the way black. Reverend Holden, wholeness rolling. I have a hard time with that. I'm trying to get used to that. Wholeness rolling. Just do it slow. Introduce yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to. Got to. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. So I am, this is my 12th year ministry. I am a youth pastor and an assistant pastor in Washington, D.C., as well as in Atlanta, Georgia. I am also a spiritual care provider and chaplain. And a mother. Awesome. I, I see we have a little. Yes. Two beautiful little babies. I see we have a bit of a delay, a bit of a delay here. OK. All right. And last but not least, I want I, my my very impressive special correspondent, uh, Angela, I will let you introduce just introduce yourself and talk about what you bring to uh, to, to tonight. Angela. Thank you for having me. My name is Angela Lee. I was a fifth grade teacher back in Austin for four years. So I worked with a very diverse group of students and I taught nearly 400 kids while I was there. Um, so I'm coming from that background as an educator, but also from being a, a student, also from parents who immigrated here from America uh, to America. So talking about my experience as an Asian American and trying to keep those cultural roots. So embracing that while still embracing being an American too. All right. All right. Well, we'll get back, get right into our discussion. I hope I, did I get everybody? Yes. Okay. So we'll get right into our discussion and to top uh, it off. I, I like what um, just, I think Reverend Shelton, you uh, really did, uh, you really did kind of hit home on, our very first topic, and that's that topic topic about driving while black. 
Now, um, most recently, and we'll, we'll have that video in just a second, but most recently, uh, ABC News produced a, uh, a, 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 a just a little bit of information. I guess they did a they did some research on uh, the the occurrence of African American males being uh, stopped by police, and 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 some very alarming statistics about uh, what's going on with our African American males. Uh, if Angela, if you want to go ahead and share that screen, we'll go, we'll share that um, just to kind of give a little bit of context, just for that. We're ready when you are, Angela. Now we don't have the audio. Sorry about that. Okay, let me try again. Okay. Now, at this defining moment in America, with so much on the line, from ABC News, My America, Your America, Our America, this is Turning Point. Tonight, driving while black. Pulled over five times more than white drivers in some cities. Driver looks more like one of our suspects because of the white signals. Philando Castillo stopped 52 times before he was killed behind the wheel. Now his family speaking out, demanding change. Does it offend you that he was pulled over that many times? Yes, it does. Because it definitely means he was profiled. Plus, why one doctor wears scrubs every day, everywhere. How his uniform shields him from suspicions on the streets and may have saved his life. Now reporting, Pierre Thomas. There is not a moment that goes by when police are uh, riding behind me where I don't fear being pulled over. When you're driving down the street, you know, and those blue and red cherries come on behind you, you all of a sudden get a tingle, your heart starts to race, even when you know you've done nothing. You I will light me? you up. Get out. Wow. Now. Wow. Get out of the car. For failure to signal. Adrenaline pumping, pulse quickening. A routine traffic stop makes most of us anxious. But for too many black Americans, such routine encounters with police can also mean the difference between life and death. Walter Scott, Samuel DuBose, Philando Castile. For a number of those whose loved ones have been killed, the fear and anger of police is wrong. For some, those sworn to protect are instead viewed as oppressors. They are here to assassinate us. They are here to kill us because we are black. My nephew, Philando, was murdered by a St. Anthony police officer in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Seeing my sister's son, my nephew, shot and killed in a car by another police officer. You know, it was devastating. Philando Castile's life was cut short on July 6, 2016. He was 32 years old. On that fateful night, Officer Geronimo Yanez pull over Castile. So, We've, we've, we've seen this is not something new. 
this has been an occurrence that has uh, a story that has uh, has been told many times. Um, but what I want to uh, get the I want to get the perspective from the panel in terms of how these things at this point we're uh, four months I think after uh, the pandemic came into play on our communities. How are these occurrences now impacting uh, African American males from from our from your perspective? And how how what are the long term effects uh, from uh, from your perspectives? Anybody can start. We were talking about this last day at the dinner table, actually. I have a 14-year-old son, and he will be 15 in about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing him wanting to get his learner's permit. And my mother asked him, what would he do if when he was driving, he was pulled over by the police? And, you know, for me and for the rest of us, when we first started driving, our parents' concern was a car accident and us wrecking the car and hurting ourselves. And now it's compounded, whereas a mother of two black boys, I'm thinking about them going out driving and my fear is them being pulled over by a police officer and being harmed. I know that my first thought should probably be them getting into an accident, but for me, it is then being pulled over by the police and just being scared. And even as a woman of faith, knowing that God has everything in control and, and we can rely and trust on God. I still have that fear of sending my son out on the road by himself eventually. And, you know, I think that it's just, it's difficult to watch the news and hear of these young men who are being pulled over, arrested, thrown on the ground, shot, killed because of their skin color. And I, I really don't know where we go in this country to, to help solve the problem and what we do, because it seems like every week there's a new incidence of police brutality and targeting black men, especially, but also women as well. Yeah, we're still trying to make sense out of what happened to Breonna Taylor. Does anybody else have uh, anything that they want to offer about that? Dr. Lewis, I wanted to chime in um, based on what you were saying. It's, it is very hard. It's very challenging to just exist in a society that allows us. But I think that the reality is that this is not new. You know, so whether, whether we are fearful of it now, um, I've seen videos from the 60s, 40s, 70s, that were all speaking about this as an issue. And I think the thing that's so troubling for me as a woman is that I hear a lot of folks talking about the men, but you're absolutely correct, um, Dr. White. Women are being impacted too. You know, we look around and Breonna Taylor's killers still haven't been <laughs> charged in any way. Right. And so I think it's such a a challenging perspective for me because when I was pregnant in Atlanta, Georgia with my son, who's now three, my husband and I were stopped. I ended up arrested and in the back of a police vehicle and I was not at fault at all. And so to, 
to know that that was my experience. And, you know, the officer literally accused me of lying that I was pregnant, called EMS. You know, knowing that all of this happened, I was coming from work, had, we were heading to a doctor's appointment and lunch, that that's how it could, you know, the trajectory of, we had only come a block. Um, we had only come a block. And so to know that that could have occurred to us, it just, to me, lets me know that, that male, female, it doesn't matter. They're just attacking black bodies at alarming rates. And I think it's very tragic because God is real, but Satan is too, you know? So, yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. White, I, you know, it's interesting because I'm probably the senior member of the group. Uh, and it's interesting because so much has changed, but so much has not changed. Uh, my mother was a civil rights activist in Alabama, and I remember her being very bold, I felt, as a young person, but she would not pull over for the police. They had, she wouldn't speed, but they had to follow her all the way home to her house. And she said, never stop, let them follow you home. Uh, and so it's just interesting that we still have this embedded fear of law enforcement uh, that still now exists almost 50 years later. I have a grandson. Uh, I always considered myself very fortunate, even though I wanted a son, that I had two daughters, that I did not have to worry with some of the things that were going on when they were growing up. Uh, but, you know, as um, Dr. Rowland said, you know, women are not immune. I mean, also look at Sandra Bland. Let's not forget her. Uh, but I think also from my perspective is like we also now even though it should not need to be done, but we also have to educate uh, or teach our kids how to survive the moment. You know, I, I was uh, raised up by, my mother would tell me, uh, when, you, when confrontation gets to a certain point, remember you want to live to fight another day. And not saying that it will always work, uh, but it's almost like we have to come up with, we have to come up with defensive tactics or offensive tactics because clearly we're in a war and, um, and we're in many ways, we're losing the war. So what do we change to, you know, that's within our control. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it is very sad. It is very frustrating. It's very exhausting uh, that we are still going through this and talking about this even right now. And I, think, I like what you said about you know, really teaching our kids to know how to survive that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, because in talking to a lot of mothers, especially mothers of, of young boys, um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, you, when, this, when this happens to you, your reaction to, to this happening to you will, will, be the, will be the difference between you getting out of that situation and you not getting out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So we'd rather see you um, put that cigarette out, if you know where I'm coming from with that. Mm -hmm. We'd rather see you just get out of the car or, you know, or, or whatever the request is so that you can live to fight another day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's just not yeah. perspective. Anybody else want to? Well, I wanted to chime in because we have this thing called the talk. Right. And so we got to start having the talk with our young, young adults, whether it be our young boys or our, our young girls. And there's been a couple of churches, even here in Chicago, 
having the talk <laughs> and in community with our young adults, our children. So if they're ever pulled uh, aside, what to do, right? These are your rights. And we made little uh, cards for them to carry with them. These are phone numbers you need to have. These are your rights you need to have. And so there have been some larger churches that have been sharing this information that I also brought over to my congregation of what to do when you get pulled over, like ABC, the steps. Um, and so to have this thing called the talk, right, with our children, I don't know too many nationalities that are having the talk, this talk. Uh, with their children. They're having other talks, you know, economic empowerment and all that kind of stuff. But we're having to talk to mm -hmm. stay alive if pulled over. Uh, so what kind of psychological, sociological piece is that, uh, that we got to turn around to our children, even young children, because we had a 12-year-old, right, shot, we're playing with a BB gun, um, to, to tell them about the right. talk. Um, but right. I think too, when you're talking about the talk, right? That um, just watching that video, um, for me, I don't have a son. So that's the point of my transparency. But I mean, just think about the tertiary trauma, right? That third level trauma. I wasn't there on site. I didn't know the person, but I felt some kind of way as soon as I saw the sirens, as soon as I see the flashing lights. It's something, or hear the siren rather, it's just something about that innate fear. I think someone said that before, right? There's just something, this trepidation that hits our bodies when when it's us being pulled over. And of course, I've been stopped before by police. But I think, you know, it's just one of those areas where we, we see it happening, um, maybe up close. It wasn't my story up close to that degree. But I just think for me, the, the psychological impact that it does have on people of color um, is something that we can't um, dismiss so easily. Um, even if we come out of it, you know, save another day to tell the story. But I mean, just, just watching it um, evokes something in me, right? This um, kind of terror, even if it's not even happening to me in this moment. So I do think that the, the psychological warfare that it presents to us is something that we also need to talk about um, that exists, at least for me, um, without having had to be in that, you know, situation with a law enforcement officer. Um, but I have worked, you know, and been trained in law enforcement in another part of my life. And so I, I get some of the adrenaline, but I also know for certain that there are pockets of people who wear the badge who do so for the sake of intimidation, right? And so I think we, we can't not have that conversation either um, during the due diligence of checking officers and making certain that we are not just giving them slaps on the wrist when they are reported um, for just being so far away from, you know, doing their duties um, and the profiling. We know it, it absolutely exists. And so I think that while um, driving while black is a real issue, I also think systemically uh, there is something to be said about those who, who do join um, these areas of law enforcement for that intimidation factor to want to be corrupt um, because generally there's nothing much that happens to them. Right. And I, and I like what you said. I like what you're saying about, um, you know, having that conversation about the psychological impacts because in a, in, and there's a, there's an impact on all that I, that I see happening on both sides. Um, 
earlier in the summer, we had a show, a, a women's laboratory, where we just talked about, you know, what's going on with black men. And the whole focus for that entire hour was about, you know, how, how is this affecting um, our black men psychologically? And when I look at the history of, of African-Americans in this country, and I see how um, our relationship, when I say our, I mean African-Americans, has evolved, um, some would say in a positive way, some would say in a negative way, our relationship with this country this government has evolved over the years. I see that there is a that that while the trend um, for for um, for for African American women has somewhat I don't know leveled off. I see that it has declined when it came to the black man, and so um, there's a and there's a psychological impact on the African American male, especially when we talk about how that African American male um, relates to his family. That's probably a whole nother show, but uh, I like what you said about that, um, uh, uh, Reverend Sutton. And uh, something else, uh, I, I like um, uh, Reverend Shelton. Um, you you uh, you you hit on what is the church's response to all of this, and um, and and that's I like that 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 in Chicago you guys are having a uh, having a conversation about you know what do you do if you're stopped by the police, you know what you know. And and maybe and maybe um, and especially the African American church, maybe we can you know do a little bit more of that. Um, and that's in especially when we're talking about civil disobedience and teaching about what civil disobedience is. Uh, Angela, was there something that you wanted to offer to the uh, conversation? I did. So going off of what um, Reverend Shelton and Reverend Sutton was mentioning. You know, when we, I, what I'm uncomfortable with is when people want to dismiss that narrative that young black men are being targeted and that is happening with the community. And I wish that there was more broadcasts and those types of segments out there for the public to be more informed about it, because I'm still hearing people, you know, just passing by or out in public still talking about how those numbers are skewed and it's really not. And I think it's really important for more people to acknowledge that they are a population of people. They are people that are being targeted. And um, it breaks my heart to know that people are still trying to dismiss statistics that we just saw in ABC news right. too. Absolutely. I, I think one of the, the challenges for the African-American community and the church is to realize that, those statistics represent us. You know, we have built this ancillary structure in which um, even we, some of us as people of color feel, um, you know, uh, it didn't really happen in my neighborhood. It really didn't happen to people who look like me and people that I talk to because we have arrived at a certain station in life. We have reached a certain level. Um, and so we don't have those difficult conversations. We don't want to acknowledge it because we want to. We want to fool ourselves that we have, uh, we have gone beyond that. So we don't. You know, people get uncomfortable when we talk about it in certain churches because we are the, you know, the uh, high cotton or whatever you want to call it church. And you know, those type of people don't belong to our church. Uh, we do outreach to them. You know, and then that's all we do. 
And, and it's unfortunate because I think some, a lot of what is going on, we bear some of the blame for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it may be ancillary, but you know, we, we stopped doing what the black church has always done, right. which is care for each other and, and, and provide for each other and advocate for each other, regardless of your station in life. And, and it just infuriates me when, you know, I look and I was like, okay, let me do a, a check. Am I talking to another person of color? Or am I looking, I'm talking to a person who really doesn't realize that you could be that person too. It doesn't matter that you drive a nice car or anything like that. Um, and I think we're it's talking unfortunate. about classism, right? Yes. So that, yes. that's the classism and the elitism that, that I think is that divide, right, in some ways. And yeah. Right, right. So what happened to those blacks, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, but not these particular blacks, right? And so that was the whole discourse. Um, uh -huh. So I think when we start talking about um, Black lives and, and things that are happening to our bodies and our neighbor's bodies, and I'm saying neighbor, I'm saying like in general, um, we do have to have some ownership in the church. And so um, one of the things that I would say is that I think we have to become the leaders that we, you know, vowed that we would be, right? So that when we mount a pulpit or we are engaged in community, um, that we are being that voice for our sister and our brother, right? That's just basic. But I do think that somehow um, in some places, right, um, the message of prosperity has overtaken um, the church. And we have put that part above you know, just basic human need and basic uh, human decency. And sometimes uh, people have tried to align, right, themselves toward a particular agenda that was not necessarily beneficial for our communities. And so I think that's uh, an important conversation as well. And then too, um, you know, being married to a clergy person, right? I think, you know, every time he gets another appointment, every time he's on the road, and I don't hear from him, you know, for a couple of hours, I am on edge, right? Because of Esther and you know, and some of you know, like how this church system works. You can be so far in a rural part of you know the state, and and you're just wondering. Well, I'm wondering, um, where is he? Um, is there cell service? Has he been pulled over? You know, so it's almost like not only having the card for your rights, but also that card to say I'm clergy or I'm you know this or that, and and not that it always will matter. But I do remember back in the day, they would have those emblems on the cars, right, to, to denote that this is a person of clergy. In other words, just leave them alone. And so I'm looking for that to come back because I do worry and I do have that kind of heightened um, fear like that anything at any moment could go wrong. But I do, I do hear you loud and clear about that classism. Um, and then sometimes it's the pain of the past, right, that when people say, let's just get over it. Um, those numbers can't be the real numbers. Um, it can't really be happening the way it's happening. Um, I think sometimes there's a pain um, that some people may have that reminds them of a, of a situation and circumstance that they just don't want to deal with. Um, I know my family came up, you know, I don't think that that long ago, right? But there's a great numerical divide between my youngest aunt and me, of course. But just to hear them talk about the, the different water fountains and you know, there's some parcels, parcels of what's happening now that they just don't want to talk about because it's so, so painful. And so rather than, you know, unearth that again, um, 
you know, sometimes the conversation is just, like you said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And yeah. sometimes I think that's a place for them to pivot um, and just wish those of us now on the front lines uh, well as we go. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you should bring up that whole um, about having the clergy on your car, the clergy symbol on your car, because that, that kind of reminded me of um, the video we just watched where that young man said that, you know, whenever he was out, he wore his scrubs and, and wearing those scrubs, you know, it was like a symbol that helped save his life. And it, it's amazing that, you know, that, 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 that we even have to, um, that is how we're treated is based on what we're wearing or what's on our cars, you know? But that's just, I guess yeah. that's the times we live in. I have a few of those stickers on, on my vehicles too. You know, mm -hmm. hopefully it helps get me out of some speeding tickets, but yeah, you yeah. just, you know, <laughs> um, yep. but you, you're right. Hope. I mean, you go into these areas and, and I've been, and I've been in a car when we've been pulled over and they may not use the word boy. Um, but they talk to you in such a way that it's like they said it and they didn't say it. Uh, so yeah, there are places that you don't want to, um, that is still happening. And I just really yeah. don't know. We had a conversation today. How can you love the same Jesus that I love um, in, a, in a ministry court part? Is... Yeah. And, and then not have a regard for humankind, you know, that I am still part of the human race, you know, and, and it is, it is sad that we are still um, having these aches and these anxieties. And it's very, uh, you mentioned something about the trauma. You know, I think about, you know, PTSD, we associated with war, but I mean, this is post-traumatic stress, you know, disorder. I know with the, um, the uh, video that was going on uh, recently, you know, I just, I, other than seeing it in the snippets on the news, I did not want to watch the whole video. I did not need to watch the whole video. And I could not in my mental health watch the whole video because I already knew how it ended. Um, and so I chose not to, um, you know, and, and it's and because it's traumatizing. Um, now what, now with that being said, um, let's, let's move on to uh, what's going on with the, Rochester Police Department. Um, it's, it's earlier, you know, there was a young man, uh, Daniel Prude, who um, not so long ago um, was in, was having a mental health crisis, obviously, and um, had uh, an encounter with several police officers. And uh, I won't, I won't tell the whole story. I think we have a little bit of video. Angela, we, are we ready for the, for that video? Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Now to that breaking news from Rochester, New York, where tonight the chief of police and several of his top officers have suddenly stepped down. Now it comes as the family of Daniel Prude, who died after being restrained by Rochester police, files a wrongful death lawsuit against the chief, the city, and the officers involved. We get more now from CBS's Julika Duncan. We want to make sure that uh, Mr. Proof's death changes how we do policing in this city. That was Rochester, New York, Police Chief Laurent Singletary at a press conference on Sunday. 
Now, just days after being accused of misleading the mayor of Rochester, he's announced his retirement, releasing this statement. As a man of integrity, I will not sit idly by while outside entities attempt to destroy my character. The events over the past week are an attempt to destroy my character and integrity. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. Last Wednesday, police body camera video from March showed Daniel Prude being arrested and restrained by several Rochester police officers. Seven days after that encounter, Prude died. His death was ruled a homicide caused by complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint. The hallucinogenic PCP was listed as a contributing factor. Yeah, it feels pretty cold. Mayor Lovely Warren suspended the seven officers she says were involved in the arrest. She initially said the police chief told her back in March that Prude's death was being investigated as a drug overdose. Late today, the mayor held a news conference. Chief Singletary will remain in charge of the department through the end of the month. And I know that he and the officers will fulfill their duties. Even the deputy chief announced his plans to retire and the mayor said she expects more officers will follow suit. Protesters will be out for the seventh straight night today. Some of them calling this move and news of the chief leaving necessary. Nora? Jerika Duncan, thank you. So uh, given what we just saw, what we know, when we know that the media has, you know, has kind of taken the ball with this and run with it. Um, we see that these are, that the persons involved are uh, persons who are African-Americans. Uh, and so what does that, it, that it, it, for me, it, it kind of creates, uh, I don't know, a little bit of a conflict because, um, you know, I, I'm expecting, um, and, and, and this may not even be fair, but I'm expecting that if you are an African-American in a position of authority, you know, you take an oath of office to protect um, everybody, regardless of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. But I would especially expect um, for you to show a little bit more diligence when something happens to another African-American. Now, that may seem, I don't know, I, but I want to get everybody's response uh, to, to what has happened. Anybody start off? Dr. Lairlane, I'm, I'm with you. I wish that it could be that way as well. Um, but I think the reality is that, it, you know, we've all seen it's just not that way. And so I know for me, a lot of a lot of what has sustained me and helped me to get through as a young adult myself um, is really just being educated by my mother. Um, my mother made it very clear very, very early on. And I watched her take my kids to the museum a couple of weeks ago. And while she was there at the Night Museum in Atlanta, there was an exhibit. And the exhibit is about African-American history. And while she was at the exhibit, she said that there were only a couple of uh, a couple of black people there as whole, but she said while she was looking at one of the pictures, she told the kids, these are people you don't want to see. And she said that the people that were there were looking at her like, how dare you? <laughs> you know, how how dare you say that? But I think I think that for us, you know, it's it's really true that whole skin folk, um, it's not always kinfolk, is very real. I think systemic 
systemically, systemic oppression has truly created a system for us where we hate each other. That's what slavery did, you know, light skin versus dark skin. Willie Lynch papers just provided information for everyone to sort of teach us to hate ourselves. And so I think a lot of it truly is just that we don't really have regard for each other as brothers and sisters. Um, we don't really care about another brother or sister. And within our community, as has already been stated, you know, we do have one percenters. We have one percent of our population of black folks that are thriving and doing well. And when they look at another brother who's on the street, they're like, OK, why are you there? You could have done everything that I could. have." That's not true. Um, you know, they, they may not have been able to do everything that you have done. They may not have had the same access and no one gets there by themselves. I think people forget that too. Everyone needs help. And many of us, it didn't take COVID for us to start living in isolated communities. We've been doing that prior to that. Some of it's safety. I mean, there's a host of reasons, but I think it's very, I think it's very troubling. Um, I know I came along when sororities in the nineties were doing so much and I w could not wait to get to college and join a sorority because I saw all that they were doing. They were just helping the community, educating, doing everything. And it is just not that way. We have become so divided. I think a lot of us were just seeking to get to what we consider to be the top and forgot that in order to stay on top, you have to bring each other along and encourage each other. And a lot of us as women, we tear each other down. Men, I hear that men do it as well. You know, So until we get to the point where we truly wanna be sisters and brothers and in a village and help, I think it's gonna be very challenging to even tackle that because a lot of it is hatred and self-hatred that is taught a lot of it from the time that we are born, you know, in this country, and it takes a lot of education to train to change that thought process. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But uh, Dr. White, I also want to say that uh, from my perspective, um, just because you have a black mayor, black police chief, um, I mean, we can even see that here in Atlanta. Uh, does not insulate us from these things happening. Right. And one thing that I learned from my 31 years in corporate is that the power construct, they will allow you to have a certain amount of authority, but you really have not penetrated the power construct of our society. Uh, we still reside in a city where there is a prominent uh, golf course that uh, uh, we cannot go on. We can't go to Piedmont Driving Club. I mean, they don't they don't allow us to go in. They don't allow us to be members. Uh, and decisions are being made there by the movers and shakers of the city. Yeah, okay, they can have the mayor, but when it comes to the the power base, uh, we 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 really don't have the power. And so I think yeah, we had an expectation that if the mayor is in power. Uh, and she is an African-American woman. The chief of police is an African-American man. We, this should have never happened in Rochester. But those, those, it does not filter down and it really doesn't filter up. So nothing really changes other than how it looks to the outside mm -hmm. is my feeling in many cases. Mm -hmm. uh, they have very little penetratable and impactful um, lasting change because systemic racism is just that, it's systemic. And it's not going to go away just because you have a black mayor, you elect a black mayor, or you elect a, you know, somebody gets promoted to police chief. Um, those, those 
cops out there that want to do it, they're still out there because it's, it's, it's part of the system. Mm-hmm. And the system works even when we look like we're in control, the system is still working against us. That's right. That's right. And it's amazing that, that um, and you're right when you say that this, this really should have never happened. Uh, what happened in Rochester should not have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my understanding that uh, a lot of, a lot of it stemmed from the, the chief of police uh, misleading um, the mayor. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that really, I mean, I, I can't really say that has to do with, I can't say that it has to do with color. It really has to do with just the sheer professionalism, unprofessionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, as a chief of police, your duty, you're, you're, you have a duty to serve and protect, but you also have a duty to operate with a level of integrity. When, you, when you're called upon to give such a delicate um, report, to to the person that supervises you, in his case was the mayor, then it is incumbent upon you to to do your job and to provide the information um, the way you should have. And so I guess in his de- he's saying in his defense he did that, but um, that's not really what the, the facts of the case. And so now he's saying, well, I'm going to resign because um, you know they're they're tearing up my character. Mm-hmm. Well. When you didn't provide the information that you were supposed to provide, then you kind of set that you kind of set that in, in motion to on, yeah. on, on yourself. And so, you know, I say it's disturbing, but I feel like you know, if we want to, if if as if as a culture, we want to advance ourselves and we want to, the world to know that you know that we are strong and we are just as viable as white America is then I think that we need to operate with a certain level of integrity. And that's not what happened, obviously, in Rochester. And it had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I think it mirrors also, uh, Dr. White, what I would see many times in corporate America, because there's so few of us rising to certain levels that when we do rise to that level, we are more focused on maintaining our position than uh, actually using that position to advance others and to impact others. We, we don't speak out. We don't challenge. We don't push back because, you know, I have made it. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this. And, and, and many times we hold on to it at the expense of our integrity. Right. Uh, because well, so the position becomes more important. And that's the only way that we can pave the way culturally for someone else of our nationality, of our color, of our culture to, to, to make it to that level. And we have to, we have to set an example by operating at a, at a level of integrity. Mm-hmm. And, and a good example of that, and not that I want to get off into uh, something else, but a good example of that was um, the presidency of, of Barack Obama. I, I'm, I'm not a big, I will say that I am not a big Obama fan, but I will say I, I can say that uh, what what President Obama did was set a glowing example of what a president and what a president should be, and not and and not so much uh, a president that's a, a black or the first black president or or just his his blackness. No, but he did. He he was a president. He was a real president. He was mm-hmm. he had the 
diplomacy. He was a great, he is a great politician. He sets an example. Uh, and so, um, you know, just, I'm not making a statement about his, about his administration, but I, I'm just saying that, you know, he set an example of what a great president ought to be. And, and by doing that, he paves the way, just like he paved the way for the, the first uh, female African-American and Asian uh, vice president candidate. I mean, you know, and, and hopefully will be, you know, vice president. You pave the way when you operate with the level of integrity. Um, what happened in Rochester sets a poor example of, of you know, when, when you have this happening, when you have African-American mayor, African-American police chief, et cetera, you know, of, of the worst case scenario that can come about. Um, I'm not going to keep talking. I want I want you guys to talk. Does anybody else have anything to offer? Because we're going to, you know, go ahead, go ahead. Reverend White, I just wanted to say that, sorry, Dr. White, I just wanted to say that, you know, I think for me, something that really frustrates me is, is the church. <laughs> um, I think the church is so frustrating because, it, you know, I've heard so many preachers, leaders in the church talk about <laughs> talk about our current president. And when you look at the church, the church has been systemically oppressing people for years. Years. It's almost like a hush hush thing. You know, I think many denominations looked at the Catholic Church and did this, but forgot that when you're pointing one finger, four are pointing right back at you. And so I know for me, I've even had a pastor tell me, oh, Allie, you have problems with how women are treated in ministry. You should have been here a couple of years ago. There was a bishop that used to fill women up when they went to the altar. So that literally means that as a member and this person was a leader, you watch that. So you're an accomplice. And so I think a lot of the times, you know, when I speak out about things like this, people will literally isolate me and say, oh, you know, you're just angry. Go seek counseling. What? And so I think a lot of it is, you know, I think it's miseducation. I think it's um, protecting abusers. And I think they're at varying levels. And I think that if we don't cut that off, you cannot protect an abuser, period. I think a lot of us do that. You know, we protect people in various positions that are abusing their power. And instead, we look at our current president when, again, these people are doing it at various levels. And I think it's just so sick. You know, and I go back to what the Jewish community says. They say, never forget. I have been to so many sayers. I have been to so many events and activities with the Jewish community as an interfaith council member. And doing that work, I remember sitting at a table one day and, and a, a member of the Jewish faith asking me, it was actually a, a female rabbi. She said, uh, Reverend Allie, don't you think you all could get in here and help us out? And I literally, this is years ago. And I looked at her and I said, what can we do? We're still being killed. And so I think, you know, I think that's a part of it. When there are people that speak up more often than not, we tear them down. Um, you know, if, if it's not if it's not an agenda that we want push, we, we mute it. We isolate that person and we quiet them. We hush them and folks get tired. And I think that's just very real. You know, after you've been shut down so many times, after somebody's told you that it's something wrong with you. And then you look at other people who are being quiet and acquiescing and just going along to get along. I mean, honestly, I'm tired of people that are just going along to get along. I think they're a part of the problem because they are protecting abusers. You know, so I think we just have to really uplift that. I do it with our with my kids at Bethel all of the time. We talk about peace last for the past couple of months. We were talking about peace because, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to wait until chaos comes into their lives to start talking about and finding ways to find peace. 
The same for hope. We're on that now. So, I mean, I think there's so, you know, there's so much um, that we do as a community. And I think black folks, especially, I can't speak for anybody else, but I think black folks, black folks, especially, we protect abusers. And it's, it is so sad to me. Um, you know, I know that it comes from our trauma, but I think it's still sad. Um, and I think it has to be lifted up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, in, in the church, that the denomination that we belong to, has a long history of protecting abusers. So, um, but that's a whole nother show, but you bring up, you know, the church's response to all of this, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I'm not afraid to talk about it. You know, we can talk, we can have, we can have a whole show on that and talk two or three hours about it. Um, but, um, but the church's response to, um, to the things that are happening in our community uh, just it, it astounds me at times because we're either silent or we're making noise about things. We're, it's like we're there's a saying in the Bible. There's a scripture in the Bible that says, how do we judge the speck in somebody else's eye when we have a log in our own eye? And so the church is notorious for casting these judgments on cultures, on individuals, on preferences. Uh, and, 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 and at the same time, they're remaining silent uh, while people suffer and are being abused. Uh, that, that is just, I mean, that's, that's, that is the nature of the church. I've been very critical, especially with what's going on on the education landscape uh, and because the church has been um, outstandingly uh, vocal about race relations uh, this year, but not enough is being done in the other areas like health, sexuality, uh, mm -hmm. education. You know, not enough is being is being done or being. Uh, there's no app, no advocacy. There, yeah. there's no activation going on, and so um, you know, I could talk all I, night about that. And I'm glad. Uh, what were you going to say, uh, Reverend Powers? I just don't know how you can be a prophetic preacher of the gospel and not be impacted by what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I was in seminary and of course I was in the throes of corporate at that time. So, you know, I, I had one foot here and one foot there. And sometimes I didn't know which one was, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, and they would be having these deep conversations, you know, on social justice. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're just, you know, this is just too much. And then as I migrated out of the corporate world, I always had that sense of my own being. Um, but as things started happening that we thought we were beyond, uh, I saw my, my ministry and my messages changing. Uh, and I never saw myself as a social justice preacher. And now there isn't a Sunday that I mount the pulpit, as they like to say that there is not social justice issues in my sermon, uh, that I am not pushing my people to be engaged. And it's hard because they've gotten complacent. Uh, our people have gotten comfortable and they don't wanna come out of their nice homes and their nice environments and basically roll up our sleeves and get dirty uh, and, and get down with the least, the loss. Uh, and so we have got to be, as leaders, we have got to lead by example. We've got to push. We've got to pull. We've got to sometimes be subjected to rejection, uh, ostracized, all of that. But it is for the kingdom. 
uh, that is at hand, not for the kingdom that, you know, everybody worried about the kingdom when they go up there and the streets are paved and go. I'm worried about the streets right here. Because if I don't do something in the streets right here, it don't matter what happens when I get up there. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and so we've got to change our, and your title says, we got to change our perspective. That's right. That's good. That's right. So given that, since we're on the church's response, um, just this past Sunday, we had a very controversial and very talked about uh, event to happen at, uh, at, at a church here uh, in Atlanta, um, where the, a very famous, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I don't want to, well, he's famous, uh, this rapper and uh, an artist, uh, Kanye West, uh, produced a worship event a worship service, a worship event, um, where he actually uh, carried out uh, a, a scripture in the Bible, and we're we're gonna we're gonna show that video now, and so that you can see it, and then we'll talk about our reactions to it. Are you ready for that, Angela? Yes, I'll pull it up right now. I think that's We're not going to give any uh, free advertising, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, Kanye West uh, produced a, uh, in his worship service this past Sunday, uh, he produced a, 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 he took a pericope out of the Bible where Jesus is walking on, on water and he just recreated it with his choir. And he had uh, the Reverend Joel Osteen uh, out of Houston, Texas to do a reflection. And so what I wanted to do uh, in our last few minutes was just to get reaction um, from, you know, good or bad. What, what, are your, what, are your, what are your reactions? And I'll close out with my own. Anybody? I'm going to jump in here. Um, I wanted to jump in a couple of places, but I jump in here. So one thing about Kanye West's service is that he gets the attention of many people. Um, whether we like it or not, he gets his attention. People will now look for that scripture. People will now look for that gospel because he gets people's attention. Um, and with the music, with the liveliness of it, the charismatic piece of it, he gets their attention. Do we agree with the theology? Absolutely not. But he does get people's attention and gets them to move in a direction that maybe some of us don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Somebody else? I feel that he... I making a mockery of Christianity and a mockery of things that we hold sacred. And um, I totally am in disagreement with what he's doing and the attention that he's calling to himself amidst all the things that he, he does, which we pretty much deem as um, unhealthy. Um, and and I, I agree that 
he does have this mass following, but he should choose to use his influence, his sphere of influence, especially with young people, in a more positive light and um, not what he's doing right now, again, which is bringing a mockery to Christianity. And and I, I just don't think that that's a good use of his time or energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I... I think that Kanye West is struggling with a mental health crisis. Um, I think it's really sad that he doesn't have the resources that he needs or, you know, I think sometimes celebrity status puts puts you in a different kind of space. And so you, people, <laughs> the majority of the people around you, you're paying them. So, you know, you get what you get with that. Um, nobody wants to tell you that you're wrong. And so I think that's very sad um, for him. But I think what he's doing with the presidential election the 2020 election, I think that is, it, you know, I, I almost think it's unforgivable. There's no such thing. I, I recognize that. But, you know, where we are right now, um, as far as our, my political views are in hopes of Biden and Harris. And so with that said, you know, all that he's doing is sort of just muddying the waters. And I think it's unhelpful. So regardless of what his message is, I think what his what his behavior is doing is unhelpful. Um, and I think that he needs to be held accountable for that. And, you know, Joel Olstein stepping in, I was very surprised by that. You know, I think it's I think it's one thing for him to be out there doing it by himself, but for him to have someone that many of us believe and many people may be, believe have a strong theological understanding and background and all of that, you know, to support that again. You know, I think we're in, in another situation where we can't really protect these folks anymore. We have to call it what it is, um, you know, and, and that's where I am. Okay. <laughs> I just say when you combine Kanye West with Joel Osteen, I have issues with Joel Osteen's theology also. Uh, it, you see what you get uh, on Sunday. <laughs> And I and I sort of also then put that whole little group and I sit them over in the corner with Herschel Walker and Vernon Jones and and all of this, you know, it it is just such a disservice for where we are in this country and, and the traumas that we're going through and the things that need to be addressed that we deal with such distractions, because I feel like that's what it was, a distraction. Yeah, I like I, I, I like that that you I like the way you put that about it being a bit of a distraction. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, and 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 it's really kind of a, a tragedy that um, Kanye gets a lot. He does get a great deal of attention mm-hmm. from from our young people, and our young people are our most valuable commodity right now. And so, if you get that, if you if you are fortunate enough to be able to get that kind of attention of our young people then I, I need I need for that for whatever you do with that attention to be productive um, and, 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 and constructive uh, for our for our for our, our, our community at large not just for African Americans but you know for for all young people um, and so um, it, creatively if I were to look at it with a creative eye, I can I'll I'll give him I'll give him an A plus on the creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's a 
beautiful, you know, beautiful thing. He's out there with his kids. Uh, the choir sounded magnificent. Uh, the song, the writing, all of that is is great. But I need you to be a little bit more careful about the messaging that comes across when you do that kind of right. that that kind well, of. Thing. Well, you know, I'm not a Bible uh, scripture quoter, but I believe there's a scripture somewhere that says, "Woe be it unto you if you lead my people astray." Um, so well, you know, I he probably I, he doesn't understand that he's leading anyone astray. No, he don't even he understand. Doesn't. He doesn't even understand the scripture that he was acting out, probably. So right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. And and just like uh, Reverend Roland said, that you know he, you know he he's struggling, and we we all struggle with our theology, our mm -hmm. relationships with God. We all mm -hmm. have a struggle. Yes, where where, where we're trying to. Uh, we're trying to balance out what life is showing us versus what we know mm -hmm. the Bible is speaking to us and it's the Holy Spirit is speaking. All of us are going through that. And so um, maybe what he, may, the, the thing about it, someone like Kanye is that his struggle is just playing out on an international, uh, on an international stage. Mm -hmm. and, and what is, um, the tragedy is that um, his struggle is not everybody's struggle, and I would hate to see that struggle to influence anybody, mm -hmm. a young person, in an adverse or negative yeah. way. Yeah. Well, given that we, I think we, the tragedy we, is. Go ahead. Go ahead. The tragedy is also that he's putting himself on the same level as Jesus. I think that's also part of the when I say making a mockery of Christianity. He can't put himself on the same level as Jesus. And, mm -hmm. and I think that when he does things like that, within his sphere of influence, you know, people who don't have a sound theological background, they, they may actually agree that Kanye is that powerful. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that is also the real tragedy of him trying to place himself at the same level of divinity as Jesus. And you know some some religions will say that uh, that a man is Jesus, man is God. Some some theologies do say that, and so he probably has a hodgepodge of things that's going on in his mind theologically. You see, and so that's when you know I guess you know that kind of gives more credence to what you're saying about making that mockery. Well, so, you know, my my ending comment to that, and I know it's sort of like out of context, but a mind is a terrible thing to waste. My, 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 you are <laughs> so true. Well, reverends, uh, thank you. We, we're we at our one hour mark. I promised myself that um, we will be sticking to our one hour. I, a couple of things I want to mention before we close out. Next week's show is going to be on climate change. And we, we do have a good panel of guests for next week and a lot of information to share. So join us uh, on next week. Visit our website to find out more about our programming. That website, again, is www.perspectiveson.org.org. Also, join our, our YouTube channel. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find out more. Subscribe to our blog. Be a part of our, our our mailing list, and you'll know more about what we're what Perspectives On is doing. Uh, in addition to what we do on Thursday nights. With that, I'll say thank you all for listening. A special thanks to Kisa Public Radio. And as we leave you, 
please remember those famous words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King that whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. Good night, everyone. And thank you once again for, for listening. Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your 